today my guest is someone who spent countless hours looking at data to save lives. As we're starting the National Suicide Prevention Month, his work is more important than ever. Ladies and gentlemen, the Chief Data Scientist at Crisis Text Line, Bob Philbin. Bob, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. I want to start by thanking you for taking the time. I believe the work that you guys are doing at Crisis Text Line is very important. So let's start from the beginning and tell me how did you get involved? Yes. Well, I have always believed in data science for social change, um, but data science didn't always exist. So originally I started out in, in a science role working for a nonprofit um, and then into statistics. So I was the first data analyst at a nonprofit called DoSomething.org, which focuses on young people and social change. So they put together campaigns like um, one's called the Peanut Butter Jam Slam, and they, they collect over a million pounds of peanut butter and jelly and then um, donate those to local food shelters. So it's youth going out and, and collecting and then donating these. Um, they collect over a million pounds. And, uh, and, and then you're, you're either on Team Crunchy or Team Smooth, um, and you choose your peanut butter preference. And basically, it's a way to engage people in a fun way in volunteering and start young. Um, so huge scale campaigns, though. And the way that Do Something reaches out to young people is via texting. So I was on the team at the time when the organization started getting these what we called out-of-flow messages. And these were teens that were volunteering with us, but texting back and saying things like they were being bullied at school or they were um, experiencing, they were coming out as um, gay or they're experiencing an eating disorder. Or um, then we got one message that came in that uh, was incredibly intense, um, but it was um, uh, a girl who was uh, being, being raped. Um, by her father. And that was the moment when our CEO at the time, Nancy Lublin, who's now the CEO and the founder of Crisis Text Line, said, we have to do something not only to help this girl, but um, other, other youth like her. Because it turns out there was no, the girl texted in, there was no texting number to refer this girl to. So we sent her um, the information for RAIN, uh, which is the Rape Abuse Incest National Network, via phone. And we never actually heard back. So that was the moment when the idea for Crisis Text Line was born. It's a service that, I mean, it's kind of crazy. In 2011, this was happening, um, that there was no texting-based, large-scale service for people in crisis. And uh, by, um, let's see, February of 2013, I was, um, I was working on it full-time when Nancy came and said, hey, we want to build this from the ground up around data and technology. Um, I was on board. And so that, that kind of speaks to the way that she thinks in terms of the philosophy, which is very unusual for a nonprofit. So actually it was me, chief data scientist, and then our chief technology officer. We were the first two employees. Um, and, and I like to say we were the East Coast version of a West Coast startup. So West Coast, you're in a garage, um, you know, coding away. Uh, here, there aren't any garages. So we were in the corner of a friend's office, uh, like coding in the corner, building, building this from the ground up. And uh, we launched in... Um, August of 2013. So five years in. Five years in, um, and those first months were were pretty incredible. We we launched in two markets. 
Chicago and El Paso. Um, and we did those because we wanted to see just how different um, demographics, different parts of the country would react to the service and see if we noticed any patterns there before we scaled up. But we launched there by pushing messages to about 5,000 members of the do something list and say, hey, we're trying out this new service. If you know anyone who would be interested, take a look. Um, from there, within four months, we were in every area code in the US. So really rapid growth. Since then, we've handled over now to date over 70 million messages um, with young people primarily, but people of all ages around the country. Um, so that I'll say like 75% of our users are under 25. So it's really to younger demographic in general. Um, and really the first service that, uh, for people in crisis that kind of targets the medium that young people use and trust. That's fascinating that you guys were able to scale so quickly within four months. What was the strategy in mind to make sure that you were reaching the, the right demographic? Yeah, so um, it was two methods. Like one, we did some on the ground work, uh, working with schools and other media that we thought might be relevant, like going to going. Um, the one that I remember the most is uh, we had people who went on the ground into schools and particularly targeted like lockers with stickers, but then also school bathrooms, because one of the things that we knew was that, and we had seen this anecdotally in some of the messages exchanged, but people are texting us from places where uh, they're, you know, they're public places, but they're also places where they feel relatively safe or relatively private. So people will be going in, you know, going to a cell, close the door and you can text and not be heard, whereas you can't, you know, do a phone call in the same way. So we were going in and doing that was one method. The other method is we did turn online. And I'll say um, one thing that's really great about um, being a nonprofit and in particular um, working with Google is Google has a Google grants program for nonprofits where you can get $10,000 a month in free ads. Um, so I highly recommend it for any nonprofit out there that's thinking about how do we generate some marketing. Uh, and so we, we also took advantage of that. And that's, of course, you know, national scale. And the nice thing there, too, is people are searching online often when they're in a moment of crisis, like, how do I respond to this? What do I do? Um, and so being able to be there as a resource for people where, when they're in that moment of crisis searching online uh, was also a, a big way for us to get the word out. How big is the operation now? Well, we're almost 100 staff, um, and that has doubled. Um, uh, kind of year over year as we've as we've gone, um, and we we actually we've gone through a, a couple big iterations. So I'll say that originally we thought we were just going to be the technology and data, which is very unusual for a nonprofit. Like normally it's the opposite, and you have people coming in to provide uh, engineering or data consulting. So we said the opposite. We said we're going to partner with existing crisis centers um, and use them to provide the actual counseling. So we have our counselors who are actually sitting on a computer and then the, the texter who's on their phone. Uh, but the, the originally we had counselors at different centers around the country that were already providing services via phone or chat. But we said, we're going to build you the technology to be able to do it by SMS as well. Um, so we started there. But then about two years in, we realized that we were going to have a lot easier time um, executing on one of the one of the principles that we grew from the ground up around, which was we want to use insights from our own data to um, inform our service center training. We're going to have a much easier time doing that if we were the one training the volunteers because every center had their own training. It was, it was hard to reach any kind of consensus around um, how to improve the training working with a lot of disparate centers. So we brought the, the training in-house 
one really nice thing that came out as a result of that beyond like being able to feed our insights back into the training was we actually saw our, our satisfaction rating from our textures jump about 10 points. And I think that was, there are a lot of components there, but I think one thing was the consistency of the training that we were able to provide. And then this feedback loop of insights based on our experience as an organization um, and then feeding those back in the training, which is like one of the, of course, one of the great opportunities being a data informed organization is learning from your own behavior at scale. Like just like any individual learns their, from their behavior, now you can do that with data. And that's uh, more and more common in the corporate space, but I would say pretty rare in the nonprofit space. And so it was um, exciting and still exciting to be on the cutting edge of, of some of that work. So how do you get the feedback? We do a few different surveys. We do one for our crisis counselors. So after the conversation closes, they, they um, fill out a quick survey. And I'll say that our, we now have 4,000 counselors around the country who do this volunteer work. And if, uh, if you're out there and, and you're interested in a great volunteer opportunity from home, it's an, it's an awesome opportunity. It's about 30 hours of training, uh, formed by our data, and then you are um, set up to, to provide counseling on the platform. So now we have over 4,000 around the country and, and actually around the world, people who are consultants. We have a lot of like, interesting groups of people who are able to volunteer who couldn't otherwise, like people who are bedridden or active military um, who wouldn't otherwise be able to volunteer are volunteering with us. So it's a, a really uh, eclectic and powerful um, way, way to volunteer. But so these volunteers... They, they do four hours a week for a year, so it's a big commitment. Um, but after every single conversation that they have with a texter, and, and just to lay out what that looks like, usually a texter texts in, they see some of our marketing, um, and that they are uh, prompted to say what, what brought them. So we ask them basically, what's their crisis? That's an automated message we send. We get a response to that. That helps us understand the relative risk level that the texter is coming in with. And we actually have a, one of our algorithms runs and automatically identifies their risk level. Once we do that, we prioritize them and how quickly they get connected with the counselor. So high-risk texters go float to the top. If, if we have any kind of a weight um, cue, then the high, highest-risk texters in terms of um, you know maybe self-harm or thoughts of suicide, those float to the top. They get connected with the counselor. And then the conversation is about 45 minutes. So it's texting back and forth, um, the counselor being typing on their computer, it's about a message a minute. So you can think about that, like 45 messages exchange, roughly. And then at the end of that, when the counselor feels like the texter has been de-escalated, we call it, from that moment of crisis, so basically moved from their hot crisis moment to a cool calm, the counselor will close the conversation and then fill out this little report afterwards. And that's things like what issues came up in the conversation um, uh, were any referrals provided to that texter, meaning like on the ground services, because some texters are, you know, for example, might need um, a methadone clinic, a rape kit, uh, various resources that are physical. And so we do make re referrals in about 20% of our conversations. So we tr keep track of all that. We also have a survey for our texters after the conversation closes, just ask some demographics and some questions about their experience. So we understand how uh, what was helpful from the from the counselor, what could be improved. And then we put that together with the real juicy part in terms of the uniqueness of our service, I would say, is we, we of course, being a text-based service, we have the actual conversation exchange. And so we can see not only how 
the um, both parties felt about the conversation afterwards, but we can see that and how that relates to the actual messages that were exchanged in the conversation. What are some of the words that trigger somebody to go to a normal risk to a high risk? Yeah, so um, uh, this is a this is a pretty interesting challenge. We have a, a data scientist who who built this on our team, um, and he identified about ten thousand words and phrases that are now indicative of high risk and um, indicate suicidal risk specifically. And so it's it's some obvious things like um, die, kill, they're just those, those words that you would expect. But then there are a lot of things that are circumstantial or indirect. So things like ibuprofen, um, so that over-the-counter in, in almost every home, that turns to be a very strong signal and actually about a 15 times stronger signal than the word suicide in itself. So... Um, you know, there are words that are not suicide that are a much better indication of whether somebody is actually going to take action. Uh, so another one is that's kind of surprised me was CVS, um, of course, being a place where you could um, find some of these these over-the-counter drugs. Then there are things like um, uh, military is, that, is actually a strong signal, um, bridge, so another potential means. So there are a range of words that are related to uh, means and then there's another set that are indirect ways of talking about it like I don't think I can go on or I don't understand what I'm doing here so different words that speak to a lack of hope or a feeling of um, not knowing what uh, what their purpose is um, and so I mean the great thing is that now we um, identify these automatically and the way we do that is we actually have these counselor surveys where the counselor at the end of conversations will label how high the um, how high the risk was in that conversation. And so we can go back and see, well, what did the texter say at the beginning of that conversation that ended up um, leading to being a very high risk conversation or a very low risk conversation? It turns out what texter says is very different between conversations that end up high risk or low risk. And so we're able to see what makes high-risk texter conversations unique. Uh, so now we have a corpus of you know, these 70 million messages. We can see the patterns from past conversations and look for those in the brand new conversations that are coming into our queue. And that's how we, how we um, identify the high risk. And the, the effect is really huge. I'll say um, we actually saw a gigantic spike in volume around the presidential election. Um, so we had a lot of people in crisis in about eight times our normal volume starting at the close of the election. Um, and we saw that sustain for the next few days. So even during that time, we were able to get to our high-risk texters in an average of 39 seconds because of this triage functionality, this um, automated uh, triage that we built into our system. Okay, now this I want to know. So looking at the data, what were people saying? Right. So this is one other really interesting side of, of our work is being able to spot trends as they happen. And then and, and this is another part of our work is sharing those trends out with with journalists so they can talk about the issues. One of the ones around the election was people who um, identify as LGBTQ were saying words like afraid, scared, um, things like that. So one theme was LGBTQ people um, feeling concerned about the outcome. Another was uh, people who had experienced sexual abuse, were also very afraid. Um, and that was actually the common theme across all these groups was this, this concept of fear and using different ways of describing that. And then the third was 
um, people who were not born in the U.S. or did not or had family members who were not born in the U.S. So those three groups in particular really jumped in terms of the volume um, right after the election. Uh, and I'll say there are there are numerous events that um, happen, like um, with the passing of uh, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. We saw another very large um, increase in volume, and so there are, there are public events that trigger experience of like national experiences of mental health crisis, and um, we are very quick to see the the result of that in terms of our volume. And then one of the power and, and uh, things that we use data science for is sharing out insights about that with the broader public and journalists. This might be a difficult question, but do you think we have always had a problem with depression and mental health, but we just kind of ignored or no, due to the, the kind of lifestyle we live today, things are just getting worse? It's a really hard question. It's a great question. I mean, I would actually defer to some of the um, like the longer term trends, I think I actually defer to some of the, the longer term data sources like the CDC or the National Institutes of Health that are showing that um, rates of suicide are potentially increasing over time. Um, you know, despite all the, the efforts that have been going on for the last 20 years, I think there was a report that came out pretty recently and I forget uh, off the top of my head who put it out, but um, that showed that suicide rates are still increasing over time in the U.S., um, one thing that, that separates our data, makes it really unique, is that we see not only these, well, so the long-term trends are one thing. The other thing is, how, does, uh, how do rates of crisis vary by day, by um, day of week, by time of year, so seasonality? Like one thing we noticed is um, crisis rates uh, for us tend to drop on holidays, um, and that was counterintuitive for a lot of people is that actually on Christmas, Thanksgiving, 4th of July, we see about 20 to 30% decrease in crisis. Um, but at the same time, the, the nature of the crisis changes. So people have less crisis, but people have a lot more crisis uh, about family. So there are patterns that, um, that are localized in terms of time and in terms of uh, location. So uh, that, that are missed in some of those longer term studies, and we're getting in conversations, you know, 24-7. So we see those localized patterns. We also see, I'll say, one, maybe one of the, the biggest ones is that two-thirds of our volume comes in between one-third of the day, between 8 p.m. and 4 a.m. And so what we're seeing is that actually most crisis is happening overnight when um, other resources, you know, part, part of that is other resources aren't available, but uh, it, it speaks to the fact that resources and more resources are needed at those times. Wow. Now, going a little bit more deep within the data, can you can you tell me more or less like specific re regions of the country, cities, or are we looking more in up upcoming middle class families or not so much? It is spread out throughout the whole country or there's pockets of issues that you guys are more concerned about? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. I think one thing is... Uh, Overall crisis does, and, and part of this is driven how we've marketed, but part of it is um, representative of the population. So it maps very closely, like the top states of population tend to have um, what we're seeing as the most crisis. But where it gets really interesting is if you look at certain issues and how they vary. Um, so per capita, where are they more common? For, uh, so one pattern that we see, which actually reflects what the CDC and IHC is, um, that Montana tends to have 
the highest rate. Ooh, I, I'm getting you got, some. You got an herb alert. <laughs> We've got a, uh, a flash flood alert or something. Oh, yeah. You, you guys are getting a lot of rain these days. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Right. Technology work. You know, that's what technology is for, right? Make sure that we can be safe. Hey, crisis right there. So, so there you go. There's a crisis. A good thing. <laughs> go ahead. Um, okay. So I was saying Montana um, has the highest rates of um, suicidal ideation of any state per capita in our data. That reflects the CDC's data. Uh, but the difference is we're seeing how those patterns break down by time, um, time of year, but then also by demographics. So one pattern that we see is um, uh, Native Americans, American Indian, Alaska Natives represent about five and a half percent of our texters. That's about three times the national percent of the population that they represent. Um, they turn out to be one of the highest risk populations for, uh, for suicide and for mental health issues. And so um, I think one great sign about our service is that it's reaching populations that, that either don't have access to care or otherwise not using services. Another group uh, that's true of is Latino population. So one in five of our texters identify as Hispanic Latino. Um, and that's, that's greater than the national percent of the population. And also a much bigger gap when you actually look at how they use uh, mental health resources, both because of lack of access and, and, and other reasons, but um, that for whatever reason, our service, and I think like my hypothesis is a lot of that has to do with the availability and the privacy. It's available 24 seven and it, it's private in the sense that nobody hears you or sees you for the most part texting um, in a way that a call is much more public. So you have this huge data at your disposal, but are local governments and other institutions reaching out and trying to create a partnership and develop a program? Yeah, it's a huge challenge. I will say this is one of the most challenging parts is how do you bridge the gap between um, having data and then having the data inform actions on a much broader scale. So um, uh, we've heard anecdotally about it happening, but I'll, here, here are a couple of unique approaches that we're taking that I think are kind of challenging the way that, that nonprofits um, normally work and, and pushing the bounds on how data and experience can inform policy. So one is we, um, we have something called a white label program. And we basically say to um, any given partner, and this might be a government entity, like um, we're, uh, an example partner would be uh, Ohio, State of Ohio Health Department. And they basically take our technology and, and get that for free. And then they just put out the marketing. So wherever they want in their local, um, you know, local towns, cities, et cetera, they're putting up marketing for crisis text line. And our number is 741741. So it says text, in their case, it says text for hope, the number four, and then the word hope. Um, and so what we're able to do is we're able to track all of the, um, uh, the people who text in after seeing those ads back to their service and then provide the um, aggregate information about the people they are helping back to the state of Ohio health department. Uh, and the great thing for the state of Ohio is that they don't have to actually provide the service. So we do the technology, we provide the volunteers, they're just doing the marketing. Um, and that's great for, so it's great for the, the um, state health department, but it's also great for the texters because it's one number, it's consistent everywhere. It's not um, changing and, and like uh, the way the crisis space 
used to be or is in general is that there are different numbers for every specific location or every specific issue. And so sometimes you end up with lists that are 40, 50 um, crisis lines long, many of which are not 24-7, many of which are only available on phone or some specific medium. Um, and so we're national, we're 24-7, uh, we're available to anyone. And so it's great to have that one number for the text area. The other really good benefit of this is it means all the data is flowing into one place. So we can see how patterns vary in a much more nuanced way than if you only had localized data about a particular issue and for only part of the day. So, uh, so we have over 200 keyword partners now, state of Ohio, um, uh, Rutgers University, uh, California Community Colleges, and then also issue-specific or, uh, organizations like the National Eating Disorder Association. So a lot of big partners, and that's one way that we are, one, working with a lot of these state government partners, um, but also pushing data back to them that they're using to inform um, how they provide mental health services. And one really concrete, speaking of the state of Ohio, concrete way that they changed how they're providing mental health services was they saw in our data that um, they were getting healthy volume, like a good number of people texting in until the summer started. And then volume dropped out and pretty much uh, went, you know, went down to nothing. And they were like, well, what happened when they saw that data? And they noticed that, well, all of their marketing had been in schools. So of course, you know, schools were out for the summer. But what they did is they tested, let's move it to movie theaters. Let's try putting up mental health advertising in, in the movie theaters and on some of the ad screens that show before the films. And then they saw their volume go up 10x even before um, when they had been advertising in schools during the school year. So that change gave them a new way to think about how do they reach people that are going to benefit from the services that they offer. So that's one very concrete um, application. Uh, and then the other that we do is we work with researchers. So one of the programs, and this is funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which I, I really have to credit um, for being on the front lines of thinking about using data science in a health um, health context. So they funded a program by which researchers come to us from academic institutions like we have um, partnerships with Cornell, University of Pennsylvania, Stanford, um, University of Rochester, et cetera, and researchers come to us and work with our data in-house. So it's a real partnership and it's a way to keep the privacy and security that's our highest priority in terms of the data by bringing the researchers into our office. We actually have a couple teams in office right now and they work with our data um, and then bring insights to the academic journals, which is one of the best ways to um, influence policy over time is really uh, policymakers and, and a lot of journalists want to see those academically validated peer reviewed journal articles uh, they're not necessarily going to trust an organization, um, which a lot of people assume, you know, oh, there's an agenda, there's a, you know, there's bias there. So we have that. You guys just have an enormous size of text in data. That way it showed the more credibility with the research that you have all variations and options to put in consideration before they included in a paper. I can see even private companies taking advantage of that information. Yeah. Yeah, we, um, we have a lot of researchers who are turning to us and who haven't found any other data sets like this. So the size, the variation, and the speed, and the con continue continuity with which the data flows in, so every second of the day, makes our data set very unique. And especially for 
um, researchers who are natural language processing researchers, so people who are looking at raw text and trying to translate in that into patterns at scale. So uh, looking at 70 million messages and discovering patterns in, in um, written language is um, something that there haven't been really meaningful data set, a, a lot of meaningful data sets around. And so to find one related to crisis uh, means you can pair some of the smartest thinkers in machine learning and data science with some of the most uh, interesting problems of our time as a society. So it's a pretty unique place to sit. Are you engaging? Because it seems like it's a much younger demographic. He says 20, majority of the people are 25 years old and less. Yes. Uh, how, how involved and engaged you are on social media? Um, so social media happens to us more than we engage with it. I will give like our communications team does a lot of work. And one of the things they do is make sure that when, um, when a crisis does happen, that we are included in the article as a resource. Uh, but then honestly, one of the, one of the best sources for and largest sources for us is people who have used the service and then post about it on um, Tumblr, Reddit. We, we were number one on Reddit because a user posted about us. There's a huge volume for that. Tumblr, there's a, um, there's a meme called Success Kid, which I'd never heard of until somebody posted a, uh, an image of us with the Success Kid that uh, basically sent our volume through the roof and quadrupled it for a month and then you know kept climbing from there. So there's there are people who find value in the service and then share it, and, and that generates a lot of our volume and a lot of our growth over time. Any private company growing the rate that you are would have a flood of investors and VCs coming in and trying to be involved. But that's not the case for you. You are a nonprofit. Yes. Um, we are... We are a nonprofit, but we think of ourselves as a tech company first, and our CEO deeply believes that. So when she fundraises, she fundraises in rounds, like a for-profit going out and raising um, a Series A or a Series B, etc. So she treats this as, as tech uh, fundraising. You get a couple years of runway where you can just go heads down on the product after raising a round, and then you go back to fundraising a couple years later. The other thing that she's been able to do by using that framework is um, go after funders who are unusual in the nonprofit space. So we have a number of funder of forward-thinking foundations who are interested in funding tech and data-first nonprofits as a way to scale interventions um, in the social space. And then also people who have made money in technology, data, and um, venture capital and who are looking for a way to give back with a forward-thinking, innovative organization. And so we've tapped into funding resources that a lot of other nonprofits um, haven't, which means what we end up with is people are willing to fund engineering and data positions. So around a third of our staff is engineering and data. And then also people who um, are willing to give unrestricted funding. Like one of the things that always inhibits it, the uh, success or the innovation of a nonprofit is a lot of their funding is restricted, has to go to a specific project or cause that may not be relevant as an organization learns over time. Um, ours is unrestricted, so we're able to be very flexible and adaptive and keep up with our learnings from the data as well as um, how our population changes as, as we serve a growing population over time. So that has been a real game changer for us, like that funding um, and also how, how foundations are starting to think differently. I would say most nonprofits don't have that luxury, but we're hoping to see, like hoping to set an example and hope to push 
more foundations to think differently about um, data science and engineering, and specifically not considering us overhead, but more as a way to grow the direct impact of an organization. How much of the funds go towards uh, operation and development? Oh man, <laughs> I don't know offhand. My but my my knowledge of the budget isn't that good, but um, I would say uh, like we're we're a um, service that puts almost all of our money into that direct impact. If you think about our technology stack, which we do, our technology stack as well as our volunteers um, and how we train them is the way of of generating that impact. Um, that's you know that's where the vast majority of our funding goes. And if you look at our marketing budget, I know. Uh, yeah, that kind of reinforces it's incredibly small. Um, on, almost no money goes into marketing. Uh, we rely on word of mouth, on um, grants that are provided or, or free in-kind support. Um, and all of our money goes into providing the service. Looking at the data in the last couple of weeks, do you see any new trend? It's a good question. In the last few weeks, I would say we are seeing um, one thing that, that happened on the tail of, um, I would say, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade is we did see a shift to higher risk. This is a this is a um, a pattern that's pretty widely known as the the concept of like copycat. Um, but what it reinforces for me is uh, copycat thinking, copycat suicides. Reinforces for me it's it's really important how we talk about um, suicide in the media and and in journalism. Um, and so one thing we're really focused on now is, is um, bringing more contacts back to journalists. Like we, um, we believe that it's really important to understand like that, that suicidality is, is, is a spectrum um, that you have ideation, you have people who know how they would do it. So we call that the, the plan. You have people who actually have the means. So if they're like, oh, I would use a gun, they actually have the gun. And then there are people who have a time frame. Um, that a uh, uh, high risk time frame would be 24 to 48 hours. I think one of the things that, that some media, like some media has it right, but some media has missed is that uh, a lot of media will say, well, talk to a professional, seek a professional. Um, and what we're finding and, and actually seeing our volunteers at work um, is that you can talk to your loved ones about suicide. You, you want to do it in the right way, but um, you shouldn't he hesitate to ask. Uh, and that um, that's one of the big learnings is, is like have the conversation. Um, so as we see this increase of risk uh, in the, you know, in the weeks after Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, that's a message that we're thinking about and how to shape that, um, especially leading up into our back, back to school time, which is when we always see a big increase in volume. And, um, and actually September is National Suicide Awareness Month too. That's a, a higher risk time in general for the nation. I'm very interested in the training that you provide for the volunteers, because if you have a understanding how to talk to people and approach the situation, that could change everything. Is there a plan to share some of that knowledge with the general public? Yeah, and actually we do. We are thinking of ways to almost, I don't know, help people copy it, because we do want to get it out there in the sense that we think one thing we're noticing is that we're We've actually trained over 15,000 people over the lifetime of Crisis Text Line, over 15,000 people around the country who are now what we consider and, and we hear stories from them, like on the ground empathy experts who can talk to people in their community with an empathy um, first approach. 
which is which is incredible to have your neighbor or your friend or your your family member be able to listen and um, uh, problem solve with you in a way that that is based on this training and really helps you move out of that hot moment. So it's incredibly powerful. And I'll say as a data scientist and a scientist and kind of like a introverted person in general, I was really nervous before doing the training. And then I did it. And I feel, I'm surprised at how, you know, that I felt capable of doing some of the conversations, uh, but but I do. So it's it's there for anyone really. And, and even if you don't know how to have that conversation now or weren't, weren't sure if you could either with a family member or, you know, if you volunteered with us, that the training does a great job of, of like helping Eva, even the introverts of the world like myself uh, kind of get out of the, their skin and, and have those difficult conversations. Um, one of the things that I'll say that for parents out there that, um, that uh, the parents on our team have noted was really powerful is this concept of, of strength IDs. So strength IDs are many people come into us feeling like they don't have support and that they feel hopeless. Uh, so meaning they don't have anybody to talk to, which is why they turn to us. And then they don't feel like they have anything good going in their life and therefore they don't have hope for the future. Um, so it's a lack of network and a lack of, um, lack of prospects basically. Uh, so the, the concept of the strength ID is identifying what they're doing well right now and showing that there is something that they can stand on, like a solid foundation. And so it's things like uh, brave, smart, and proud. Those are the three words that turn out to matter more than any other three words in our conversations that indicate a high satisfaction rating and a good outcome for our texters in terms of moving from that hot moment to the cool moment. So it's things like brave, smart, and proud. Like that was so brave of you, even to call it out, it was so brave of you to contact, to reach out to Crisis Text Line today. I'm sure that, you know, that wasn't easy, but it's a meaningful step forward. So saying things like that, or that was so smart of you to, um, you know, talk to your friend about X issue or, uh, something like that. So, but framing it around these words of the, you know, the, the characteristics that people want to have, um, and really finding those places that are that are true. It's like people are making efforts that are brave and smart and proud. It's just we often don't say it. And it turns out that our counselors can use. We have over four hundred strength IDs that that we um, offer and and um, have in a list. But those are used up to eight times in a conversation and still adding value to the, um, to the conversation. So you, basically you can use them a lot and uh, continues to have positive returns. Well, as you know, there is no lack of companies struggling to get the right message. And uh, this could definitely be a format in a template. Yes, so I'm really glad you brought that up. We, um, we feel like there is an opportunity for creating empathy in the for-profit space, especially around customer service. Um, so anybody who's waited on the phone for half an hour trying to reschedule the flight and uh, wondering if somebody is in the queue ahead of them who's rescheduling for six months from now when you're taking that flight you know, in an hour, um, those are moments where we want to and we believe that empathy can play a role in providing customer service, uh, so superior customer service. So there's an offshoot of Crisis Text Line called Loris, and this is uh, Loris AI. Um, this was an idea of Nancy's to bring empathy 
um, to the to the for profit space. And so they're they're just getting off the ground and, and finding initial partners and things like that. But I expect over the next couple of years, we're going to see data science and um, uh, empathy as a concept floating into some of the larger organizations and how they approach customer service. Have you always wanted to work for a nonprofit? Yeah, I've always wanted to see social change um, uh, in, on different topics, but I've always believed that science is a way to do it. And honestly, it always bothered me a little bit seeing some for-profits use it really well and then seeing some nonprofits um, not, not having the resources to, um, to use some of those engineering, um, data science, different approaches that are more like techno technologically advanced and therefore many times more expensive. So I always thought uh, the nonprofit space needs more data and then data and science actually needs more social good. So it goes both directions. Like when you go to a business school or you go to a data science program, having an organization, um, like oftentimes these programs partner you up or have feeders into some of the large um, for-profits, um, I'm hoping and working to move more of that towards the nonprofit space. So uh, we've got a small team here, but but growing. We've got a team of four. Um, and it's just amazing to see now. I um, now sit on an a informal group called um, Data Scientists for Social Good, though, and, and we have um, about 10 different organizations that are all similar to ours as nonprofits with data scientists, and we, we face similar, similar challenges. So it's cool to have a now a growing group of people over time who are data scientists, um, not, not applying it to like marketing alg algorithms, or at least marketing algorithms for, for products we believe in and change, you know, change the world. So um, it's changing slowly. Now, there are a small group, but a very loud group of people who reject data and science in general. As you probably know, people who are denying you know, climate change, and they think some of the data that we enforce is more politically driven. How do we feel empathy for them? Yeah. Okay. Here's one shot at that answer uh, at that question, which is a very hard one. But um, I have always believed in environmental issues and climate science in general, and it is painful to see um, how how easily climate science is um, knocked aside basically in the, in the public sphere. Um, and so I was always like, man, we have such good science and data on this, but it's so easy to push it aside and be like, well, it snowed. Um, so we're good. But I think what's um, the argument to make or the, the problem to solve is actually not more data. The problem to solve is um, kind of what you're getting at changing the culture. Like, the reason why data works at Crisis Text Line is because our CEO believes in data and she hired against that. If I volunteered and worked at some places where that was not the case and it's impossible to get anything done because what data is arguing for is augmenting intuition uh, as a way of making decisions. And so if a CEO or the top level management is not willing to have their intuition augmented or, you know, or even in some cases um, uh, replaced with a data-informed decision, then it's not going to go anywhere. And I think that's true about our society in general. So, uh, you know, there's actually a ton of storytelling, cultural work. I say to like my team internally that about half our work is actually creating this culture and telling the story of data as a way of thinking um, 
and basically building that trust before we can actually get anything done in terms of changing decision making. So it's an uphill battle. And, and I would say that's how I approach my conversations, though, in general, is um, coming from a place of, of trying to build trust and understanding a, a, in data as a way to make decisions. In a daily day, you are directly involved in reading a lot about people's problems and issues. But what about yourself? How do you keep yourself in check and don't allow those things to interfere with you and your personal life? That's a great question. And I get asked about it periodically, and I never really have a good answer because I don't feel like it impacts me that much because I guess I'm just so excited to be working on something meaningful. And, um, you know, maybe part of it too is it's always been a passion of mine because as an introvert and as a somebody who grew up shy and, and uh, introverted um, and then somehow ended up in science and data and looking at numbers all day, uh, which is sometimes a pattern, uh, but that I was able to, I feel like here I am able to help other people who are sometimes in the same position. Um, uh, so people who are texting are sometimes shy, um, uh, introverted, things like that. And so to be able to help other people like me go through um, similar challenges that I faced growing up just keeps me hungry for, for doing the work. And um, I was actually talking about this with somebody yesterday is that um, in order to data, to infuse data more into the social change space, you need organizations who can accept data scientists who know how to make a good use of a data scientist and aren't just going to put them in a corner and, and hope they do something amazing because they probably won't in that case. But you also need data scientists who are um, high EQ or very excited to solve social social problems. And like both pieces of that puzzle need to be there for this to really work. The data-informed nonprofits and then the um, EQ or human-first um, data scientists. And, and I would put myself in that camp of being a, a human first, um, caring about the, the impact that we're seeing on the world um, type of data scientist. And um, it's, yeah, it, it, I would say it's, it's, a, it's a thing that most people don't hire for, but it's something that, that I really focus on in, in hiring it, uh, our data team. Do you think that has anything to do with your upbringing, like how your parents raise you? <laughs> I don't know, oh, man. Um, that, that, now I'm going outside of science into assumption making. But I'll say one thing is like, I love storytelling. I, my, my side um, passion is always writing. And so um, storytelling is, is in general, I'd say a way of changing how people think or providing some new fresh look and therefore informing action. And so one side of data that's always been a passion of mine is like if the end goal is influencing action is what is the story that you create um, that data in itself does not change behavior. And, and that gets back to what I was saying about the, the climate scientists. So it's always been a passion of mine to figure out like, what's this now that we have a powerful insight, what's the story that's actually going to get people to act on it. And um, I'll just give a quick anecdote there. Like the first powerful insight that I found at crisis tech sign was that the, the way I ended up phrasing it was that 3% of our texters, about a year into um, our service, uh, fall of 2014, 3% of our texters were using up 34% of our counselors' time. So a third of our counselors' time was going towards this incredibly small fraction of our texters because they were using us as replacement therapy. And that meant 
that one, we weren't providing the right service for them because we're a crisis service. We're not long-term therapy. So we needed to be getting them to the right service. But two, it meant that we had to limit our marketing and we could support fewer other people in crisis because we were so heavily supporting that group. So that was a story that took me, honestly, a couple months of, uh, you know, going to sit in Central Park and then <laughs> thinking about the story and then coming out again. But uh, to, to figure out how to frame that in a way that resonated, um, because, the, of course, the, the data was messy and had to shape that. But once I landed on that as the right way to frame it, then people are like, we need to do something about it. And within two months, we had um, overhauled our policy and our product to mark these textures and make sure they were getting onto long-term resources that were a better match for them. We freed up, now they're taking up about 6% of our time, the, the top 3% of our texters. And um, they're actually giving us higher ratings too because we're getting them to the services that they need. So I'd say that's one example of a storytelling that, that I really feel passionately about. And I think maybe why I've always wanted to be in like the human side of data science. Now it's one of my favorite parts of the interview. I wanted to pick a book that it is important to you or important to the work you do and share with us. Yes, um, I am reading and, and rereading a book called Mindset by Carol Dweck right now. And it, uh, she is a psychologist. It's exposes, or it espouses the idea of growth mindset, which is that who we are is not fixed, um, that we can always learn and grow. And so um, I highly recommend it as a way to um, kind of challenge yourself to grow every day and, and like look for opportunities to be better every day. And that's, uh, that's been a challenging but worthwhile process for me. So one of the way that manifests is like after every meeting or, or call or things like that, I, I go back and ask people, um, how could I have been of uh, more help in that conversation? How could I have been more help to you, to your organization? Uh, things like that. And that's, it's, it's a great conversation. I learn a lot. Thank you so much for taking the time. This has been very informative, a very powerful podcast, at least personally. I think people who's going to walk away with a lot of good information that can um, help their lives and help some loved ones as well. Now, tell everybody how they can find out more about you and Crisis Text Line. Awesome. So the, uh, the text number for Crisis Text Line is 741-741. Uh, it makes a line down the left side of your phone. And the the keyword to text in is start. So text start to 741741. And then for me, I am on Twitter. You can find me at Bob Philbin. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Philbin. Bob, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jerry. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. For giveaways, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook or Visit our website, mindedpodcast.com.